The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29 and in verse 11. This is a very commonly known verse in Christianity today, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. I'm sure you've seen it in a lot of different places, uh, on bumper stickers and uh, a lot of other places, and I don't know if it's always put in the right context, and that's part of what we want to consider together. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And that's very commonly quoted in uh, other versions or in um, or the more common quotation, I suppose, um, is I know the thoughts I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And that actually is the alternate wording for the King James translators if you have a center column reference. Um, but this verse, I believe, many times in Christianity today is used to present um, almost a uh, prosperity gospel kind of disposition that um, God knows the thoughts he thinks towards you and he's going to give you not necessarily an expected end in context. He's going to give you what you want. He's going to give you uh, the desires of your heart. Well, it tells, in, tells us in Psalms, God will give you the desires of your heart. But if you pray for God's will, the desires of your heart should align with God's heart, That's right? right. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. And if we're in the Word and we're looking for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then the desires of your heart should align with the desires of God's heart. So there's not, that's not totally untrue. Uh, but I do believe that this is uh, presented in probably a little bit broader context than it, it is uh, here in uh, the immediate uh, context of these verses here in Jeremiah chapter 29. So we'd like to go through that. So um, first of all, I think what's very important to understand um, in, and really, as it is with many things, you almost need to re read the whole book of Jeremiah uh, to really understand the environment that he's prophesying in. But especially, though, um, in the chapters leading up to this is uh, Jeremiah is having to deal directly and face-to-face -face and publicly rebuking false prophets that are telling God's people that they are not going to be in captivity, right. that uh, you are not going to serve Babylon. And uh, Jeremiah has been prophesying for quite a period of time that you will spend 70 years in captivity. And the reason for that <clears throat> is because they had omitted 70 Sabbath years of rest that the land was supposed to receive and God is long suffering and praise God he is but there comes a point where you reap what you sow and he said the only way that my land is going to have its rest is if these people aren't on it 
So I'm going to get rid of them for 70 years. <laughs> so the land can have its rest. So the judgment, the chastisement of God upon his people of those 70 years was not going to be abated. It was not going to be reduced because they had literally skipped 70 Sabbath years. Every seventh year they were required to not plant anything in faith and confidence in God that he would provide for them. And they omitted that for 70 years. And he said, because you did not observe that for 70 years or uh, 490 years, actually. Uh, they did it every 70 years. So you've been disobedient for 500 years, right? <laughs> because of that, you're going to spend 70 years in captivity. And Jeremiah had said this very consistently. Chapter 25 and beginning in verse 10, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle. And this whole land shall be in a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. I'm so glad that God has given us a hopeful, joyful message to preach. <laughs> I, I think very often I'm so blessed to have not been called <laughs> to the ministry of Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Just in case I ever start feeling bad for myself sometimes, go read Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And I, I have the privilege of preaching uh, a gospel of salvation by grace alone Amen. instead of telling them judgment, right? 70 years uh, that you're going to spend in Babylon because of your sins. But then you have these people coming up to the king and saying, yeah, Jeremiah is, he's the one that's not a true prophet. We're the true prophet. And they go up to the king and say, no, you are not going to serve Babylon. Uh, now, before we go any further here, uh, we do need to highlight that there were three separate exiles to Babylon of uh, people from Judah or Jerusalem. Uh, the first of those in roughly 605 B.C., the second in 597, then the last in 586 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, the reason why that's important is because, um, and then on the back end, by the way, you have three exiles, but then you have three returns, too, uh, and you can study that out. But one of the reasons why that's important is, is because this beginning of the 70 years technically has already begun. The, the clock had already started ticking but after the first captivity, all right? And this is in the immediate aftermath, actually this portion, uh, before we get to chapter 28, um, 26 and 27 is prior to the first Exile. Okay? So, Jeremiah is saying prior to 605 BC, you're going to serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. All right? And then there are prophets that stand up and say, no, he's wrong. We're not going to serve Babylon at all. Well, then what happens, kind of similar to <laughs> these people who say the end of the, the world is going to be, uh, you know, on X date, and then that date passes, they're like, oh, wait a minute, we were wrong. <laughs> well, pretty much, they, they first said, we're not going to serve Babylon at all. And then, lo and behold, that first exile happened, and then they said, oh, wait a minute, yeah, we were wrong about that. But then Hananiah shows up, and this is in chapter 28, a prophet who says, yeah, 
we're wrong about that first part, but we're only going to serve them for two years. <laughs> so uh, they first said, we're not, we're not going to serve them at all. And these false prophets are standing up, and they're the one that's ridiculing Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is serving the Lord, and he's pre preaching what he's supposed to preach, and thus saith the word of the Lord. And then those people were saying, no, we're not going to serve Babylon at all. But then that first captivity happens in 605 B.C., and then they've just got egg on their face. They're like, okay, well, actually, we're only going to have to serve them for two years. That's what Hananiah said. <laughs> this is in chapter 28. Um, so this happens, this interaction with, Je with uh, uh, Hananiah here in Jeremiah 28 and verse 1. This happened in the fourth year of the reign of Zedekiah. So that possibly would put this, this is not exact, but a ballpark, if you'll bear with me, um, around 593 B.C. So if that is accurate, I would say that they are already 13 years into this beginning 70-year captivity. All right? If you'll, that may not, math may not be perfect because we don't have exactly, but just to give you a ballpark. So what Hananiah is saying is it's going to be two years and then it's going to be great. Y'all are all going to get to go home. But the reality of the situation is it's not two years. It's 57 years. All right. That's a whole generation. That's a whole generation of people. Now, Jeremiah ends up telling, he has to withstand Hananiah's preaching before, this is in chapter 28, he's preaching before the, uh, the king and all the people. And because Hananiah is telling all the people in public, um, Jeremiah has to stand up and rebuke him in public. And he actually says, not only are we not going to only be in captivity for two years, but to confirm that uh, what I'm telling you is the truth, you're going to be dead by the end of this year. And lo and behold, what happened? Hananiah died. So that, that should have kind of rung some bells, right, with some of these Israelites that I think Jeremiah is the true prophet, you know, because he told people that, that you're the false prophet, and by the way, you're going to die by the end of the year, and then lo and behold, the guy ends up dying, right? So they should have had some bells ringing that, you know what, maybe when you start listening to this Jeremiah guy uh, instead of all these false prophets. But I want you to understand, Jeremiah is having to deal with a people that are being told what they want to hear, yeah. and a king who are be, and a king who's being told what they want to hear that everything's going to be okay. No, you're not going to go into captivity at all. Oh, wait a minute, we are in captivity. Oh, it's only going to be two years. Don't worry about it. You haven't done anything wrong that you need to repent from. Sounds a lot like some of the people in the New Testament, right? There's going to come a time where they seek. Uh, See, teachers having itching ears, they just want people to tell them what, what they want to hear and make, them, make themselves feel better instead of having somebody point them in the face and say, thus saith the word of the Lord, you're in sin, you need to repent. And God's people don't like that sometimes. So Jeremiah is dealing with, I guess you could say for lack of a better term, um, the, during this context and during this day, uh, prosperity, false prophets. I mean, that's pretty much what they're doing, right? This is the reality of the situation. We're in captivity. We've got 57 years to go. And you need to repent. You, you need to learn. I mean, the, God is chastising you for a purpose. And you need to understand what you're being chastised for and repent instead of people telling you, well, you, it's okay. You haven't really done anything wrong. You just got to wait it out. You just got to wait out two years. I mean, 
Jeremiah is pretty much having to rebuke the prosperity preachers of the day. So it's in that environment of false prophets. That's probably the most important thing to understand. It's that environment of false prophets that are telling the people everything's going to be okay that he writes this letter here in Jeremiah 29. Okay? So this begins in verse 4. Jeremiah 29 and verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Now there's other places in Jeremiah and a few other places as well where it even calls Nebuchadnezzar God's servant. Now Nebuchadnezzar is a very interesting figure. Um, And it's a good thing that we're not the people at the end of time that decide who the sheep and the goats are, right? That's the Lord's business. I have a lot of thoughts about Nebuchadnezzar, and they're not really relevant. Uh, uh, Whether he's in the Lamb's Book of Life is not relevant to our discussion. But regardless, in this instance, in this instance of him taking Babylon, God makes it very clear that I am suffering this to happen, that I am removing the providential hedge from my people and I'm suffering Nebuchadnezzar to come in for the purpose of chastising my people, for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. But then there are multiple places where he said, I'm using, I'm suffering Nebuchadnezzar to do that. But after all this is over, I'm judging Nebuchadnezzar for doing it. Right? So we we know that scripture is very clear that God is not the author of sin. He does not tempt men to sin, and he has no participation in that. But there are times where God sees fit in his will and his providence to remove his hedge and suffer things to occur for purposes. And in this instance, he he removed his hedge, and he allowed a wicked man with wicked devices who wanted to conquer these people anyway, he removed that hedge knowing that Nebuchadnezzar's natural disposition will be to invade And he used that, according to his will and purpose, as a chastisement of his people. But then he was not uh, saying that it was okay, that he was uh, uh, giving permission for Nebuchadnezzar to do it. Because there are many scriptures that are very clear that after that was over, he was going to judge Babylon for doing it. So I don't know if that made sense. But uh, God suffered it to happen. But then he would end up judging Nebuchadnezzar on the back end for doing it. But who was, the, who was the root cause? I mean, God could have put uh, a providential hedge around them, and if they would have lived in obedience, it, it's possible. That's not what happened, but it, theoretically it would be possible for them to live the, the kingdom period of, of Solomon the whole time. They were, they were so rich, they had peace, and then before Solomon started worshiping all them false gods, I mean, they could have had tremendous prosperity. The only reason why they were able to be conquered was because God removed his hedge because of their sin. Okay? So God says, I just want to clear the table right here. And just in case you think this is just, some things just happen because there are, uh, we're in a world that's fallen and sinful and sometimes people have car wrecks just because we live in this world, you know? Sometimes bad things happen just because we live in this world. But I want you to know, Israel, is that I have caused you. That's what he says. I have caused you to be carried away for a purpose, for a purpose. And you don't need to doubt that I have 
lost my sovereign control of this universe. You don't need to doubt that I've lost the sovereign control of this situation because you're in an unfortunate state. No, I'm doing this for a purpose, for the purpose of your chastisement. And you need to learn the right lessons in the midst of that chastisement. So God says, you don't need to think that Nebuchadnezzar has uh, overruled my will. No, I have caused you to be carried away captive for the purpose of chastisement to bring them to repentance. So what is their response now? Now that you're in Babylon, all right? This is after the second wave has come. So this is after the second, uh, after the second exile and then before the third and before the final destruction of Jerusalem and minimum of four years after it because of the reference in 28 and 1. So 57 years possibly, 57 years left in captivity, what do you do? What do you do? He tells them in verse 5, Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and begat sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. He says, listen, live life. Live life in Babylon. Now, it's true that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. He, he's not saying to compromise. Now, there are instances later there in the book of Daniel, God's people didn't compromise, right? There were people that were thrown in lion's dens and in uh, furnaces because they didn't compromise. He's not saying you just blend into the culture. See, that's what most people want to do today is they just want to blend in to spiritual Babylon. Right. Okay, so first of all, we want to look at the historical context right here, but then the more appropriate uh, discussion is how does, what is how does this apply to us today? Obviously, it had an application to the immediate audience right there, but how does that apply today? And I just want to kind of give you the the end result of where we want to get to is we are living in spiritual Babylon today. Right. We are. What is our response when we are in the middle of spiritual Babylon? What's our response? He said, live life. Live life. You know, it's not our calling. Uh, there's a place to be... Uh, prepared for the future and maybe even prepared for unfortunate events. But uh, the church is not called to be doomsdayers and live down in a bunker. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill, right? So what do you do in Babylon? You don't, you don't bunker, bunker down and say, I'm, I'm, I'm only never going to leave the house. I'm only going to talk to my family. No. The darker the culture gets, the more you need to shine your light brighter, right? Yeah. So what do you do? Don't compromise. He says here, take wives and begat them. Well, it's not good practice. The Old Testament is very clear. It's not good practice for you to uh, most likely marry Babylonian wives, right? No, you need to marry God's people that have the same values as you. But what would literally happen? Let's say if they all just sat there and pout, pouted the whole time and they didn't live life and build houses and have kids back in this day um, not that many people lived past the age of 57 
I mean, you could die pretty young back then. So what would happen if they did not have children in the midst of captivity? What would happen? There would literally be no one left to return. So kind of jumping ahead a little bit, he says, I'm going to give you an expected end. And that word end there can literally be rendered posterity, a future and a hope. He said, look, you live life in Babylon, and if you have kids, I have not totally forsaken my people. There will be a people to return. But if you don't live life, if you don't uh, have wives and bear children, there are not going to be any kids to go back. I'm also very glad in the midst of judgment, this is such a consistent theme all throughout the Old Testament, that God does not pull any punches. He said, you've sinned, I'm going to judge you, but he always promises restoration. Always. He always promises restoration. And these, God's people in this day, they had that promise of restoration too. But how was there going to be a faithful people to return? Not just that there were biological Jews to go back, but what's going to happen if you don't teach your kids what the Old Testament law said while they're in the middle of Babylon. You're going to have people go back to the Jewish homeland and they're going to be Babylonian. Right. <laughs> Do you understand that? Like if you're not diligent to teach your kids in the midst of, not just to have kids, but to teach your kids in the midst of Babylon, then there's not going to be anyone to go back. But furthermore, if there are people that go back, the only thing they're going to know is Babylonian ideology, not Jehovah God, you see? So that's why you have to be diligent in the midst of this captivity so that there is somebody to go back for the promise of the restoration, okay? So he says, look, don't hunker down and say that, uh, when I say don't hunker down, I mean, uh, you probably, these Jews in these days, they probably didn't need to be best friends with all these Babylonians, I mean, right? You need to interact with people, but your closest friends that can influence you and your closest relationships should not be, it says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Right. They're going to be a negative influence on you. So, right. so I'm not saying that there's not a distinction. I mean, think about Egypt and, and Goshen. There was a big difference, a big uh, separation between Goshen and Egypt. But don't compromise your values and don't fit in. But your best friends really should not be Babylonian. Right. Okay? So when I say don't hooker down, live life, that does not mean that you just assimilate to the culture. Okay? That doesn't mean you just fit in. Be prudent. And then it says, uh, if you do that, bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. Well, do you remember what happened when God's people went into bondage in Egypt the first time? What was it, 70 people that went into captivity? And how many millions came out? I mean, they suffered great, great uh, difficulty in the midst of that bondage, but they had a limited amount of people that, that went in and they had millions of people that came out. I mean, God increased them 
in the middle of bondage, right? And he said, look, if you do that, I'll, I'll bless you the same way I bless Jacob's family in that way. You can increase in the midst of bondage. That you be increased and not diminished. And then also, don't, you, there's a place to obey God rather than man, no doubt. But for the most part, you need to seek the peace of the city, whether I have called you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. So you don't need to be causing riots all the time in Babylon. You need to be an obedient, good citizen. But obviously there came times in the book of Daniel where we ought to obey God rather than man. I mean, I can't bow down my knee to a graven image. But pray for the city. You know, if we don't like our leaders nowadays, how hard do you think it was when Paul wrote in the New Testament to pray for kings and for those that are in authority? How, far, how hard do you think it was for the original church and Paul in particular to pray for the Caesar Nero? How hard do you think it was for these people in this day to literally pray for Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, that, that's hard to get over the fleshy, fleshly part that says God call down fire from heaven and consume this man. <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of what we want, right? Uh, to remove this wicked influence. But we have a responsibility. New Testament is very clear about that. To submit ourselves to every ordinance of man. Romans chapter 13. Now there comes a time where if the ordinance of man conflict the word of God, we obey God rather than man, no doubt. But for the most part, we should be uh, we pray for our leaders, uh, pray for kings and those that are in authority. This is First Timothy chapter 2. That you may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Right. Pray for your leaders so they'll leave you alone for the most part. You know, for the most part in the history of the church, governmental leaders have persecuted and injured the church and God's people. We've been protected from that in America and praise God that we have been. But for the most part, government is antagonistic toward the true church. Right. So therefore, you need to pray for them so they will leave you alone where you can just worship in spirit and in truth, live a, a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty and serve God with your family and in your community and in your church. Right. And you need to pray for your leaders to allow you to do that. Yeah. Because in the peace of the city, you will have peace. In other words, um, if, if you don't pray for your leaders and they make bad, of course they can make horrible decisions even if you do pray for them. But uh, if a war comes to Babylon and some enemy invader is trying to destroy Babylon and you're in the city, you're in danger just like everybody else. But in the peace of the city, you can have peace, though, right? So if, if the military is strong enough there in the city of Babylon to protect that city, then you can be safe in the middle of that. In the peace of the city, you can have peace. So pray for your leaders is what he's saying. Pray, and it, it must have been so difficult for these Jews to pray to Jehovah God for Nebuchadnezzar. But he said, look, you need to do that because 
Their peace is your peace. Okay? Verse 8. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to their dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. Now, back up to verse 1 there. This is actually a letter. This is a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the people in Babylon. Okay? So, Jeremiah is not preaching this message to them face to face. This is a letter that he wrote that was delivered to the captives in Babylon. Now, it appears that even among those captives there in Babylon, there were still some false prophets that were saying, no, 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 we're going to be back home very soon. Do you, do you understand the, the difference in what, uh, in what Jeremiah is telling people here versus what these false prophets would have been saying? They said, don't, don't get comfortable. Don't build houses. Don't plant vineyards. Don't have kids because we're going to be back home really soon. And not only do we not need to pray for the peace of the city, we need to start a rebellion. We need to uh, overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. And it appears from the way he writes this, in the midst of you, let not prophets and dividers that be in the midst of you. There were people there in Babylon that were telling them, don't get comfortable, we're going to be coming back home. And then also, we need to start a rebellion. And he said, don't listen to those false prophets. Don't listen to the false prophets. Because they deceive you and neither hearken to your dreams which they cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely unto you, and I have not sent them, saith the Lord. The Lord said you're going to be in captivity for 70 years, and anything short of that is a false prophet. If anyone's telling you something other than that, I didn't send them. So he said, be very careful, be very vigilant of false prophets when you're in the midst of Babylon. Okay? For thus saith the Lord. Now this is what the false prophets are saying. But this is what the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished. Now I'm not going to shortcut that because you're the ones that didn't give my land rest for 70 years. But after 70 years are accomplished though, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. You're going to come home, but it's also reality that some of you may die in captivity. Some of you are not going to come home. But your people, your children, they will return. Why? Why will they return? Because God hasn't forgot about them. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, right? God hasn't forgot about them. He knows where they're at. God's in control of the whole situation. Right. He's guiding it. He's chastising them. And he knows the exact uh, time uh, left on the clock that they have in captivity. He's in control of it. I have not forgot you. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. And I'm also not even uh, trying to hurt you or injure you. They are still thoughts of peace and not of evil. I'm not trying to hurt you. No, this is, this is loving, fatherly chastisement to bring you to repentance. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. So you can return back home. So you can have a future and a hope to where you can return to your homeland out of Babylonian captivity. 
And then he goes on to say, Then shall you call upon me, when they return back home primarily, then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with your whole heart. Verse 15, because ye have said, actually, let's read 14. I will be found of you, saith the Lord. I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all nations and from all the places whether I have driven you. He said, look, I'm in control of the situation. I have driven you in this way. Saith the Lord, and I will bring you again. You see, God's in control of this whole situation. I will bring you again unto the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Now, this encouragement that he gives them here is that if you are faithful in the midst of captivity, if you're faithful in the midst of Babylon, then you will have a good, godly generation 57 years from now that when... It's amazing the Lord, how the Lord worked out that return and how he prophesied of Cyrus by name hundreds of years before he even knew what he was going to do. And then Cyrus gives them that opportunity to return and God allows that in, in a very blessed way uh, to allow them to return. And that was at the exact appointed time when 70 years were accomplished. And what did they do? They went home in three different waves, and then they, they returned home to that, that future and that hope, and he gave them restoration and allowed them to return unto their homeland. Now, uh, what is the, the broader um, spiritual lesson for us today in the midst of that? Um, in Revelation chapter 17, you have this depiction of a Babylonian whore and she's in league with the beast, which is depicting the worldwide kingdoms of the world. And my opinion of that Babylonian whore is that that is the world, the fallen world system apart from God. I think it's really too broad to be speaking of the Pope or apostate Christianity because it's saying that all of commerce, when Babylon falls there in chapter 18, essentially the worldwide economy collapses. And they're in league with this beast, and this beast is going all the way back to Babylon. It's going all the way back to being in league with the first of those kingdoms of the beast, which is Babylon. And that, that predates apostate Christianity, and it, and it predates the Pope, too. So that's my opinion. But that is depicted, I hope you see the picture, though, the world is depicted as Babylon. And to a large degree... Uh, the story of the Bible, one underlying uh, story throughout the whole Bible, is the tale of two cities. That's right. Babylon and Jerusalem. You remember back in uh, the book of Genesis when Nimrod started his kingdom? And then the Tower of Babel, Babel, Babel which is the, the, the remnant or the beginning of, of uh, Babylon. What did they do? They said, we're going to build a tower up to heaven. We're going to be gods. Man is going to build something that's going to be greater than Almighty God. And then God confounded their, uh, their language, obviously. But that is the beginning of the city of Babylon. You understand that? All the way back in Genesis. 
And, and Babylon represents this fallen world system apart from God. But then you have another city, which is Jerusalem, which is the city of God, which is the city of peace. And we are living in spiritual Babylon today. And I hope you're not happy in Babylon. I hope your mindset points toward a better country, our homeland, because we are simply pilgrims and strangers in this world. We are in captivity right now. We are. We're in the captivity of Babylon. But I hope, since you're not of the world, God has, has born you again where you are not of the world. We may be in the world, but we're not of the world. I hope that you're not content in this world because God said friendship with the world is enmity with God. Yeah. Okay? I hope you're not content here in this world, but there is something inside the child of God, just like those Jews. You know, there's a lot of other verses that kind of fall in this context too. He, he said there when we were in Babylon, uh, this is in the Psalms, maybe, maybe 139, I can't remember. Uh, but he said that they required of us a song. They wanted us to, to sing the songs of Zion. And we just wept. We wept because we loved our homeland. And, that, and they were mocking us and saying, sing the songs of Zion in a strange land. And you kind of tie that, that chapter right there to where they were forced to sing the songs in a strange land to, to then the joy when they actually returned in one of the other Psalms where it says, when the Lord turned again, the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. They went from tears. God, in that same chapter right there, it says those that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Well, they wept in Babylon because they desired to be home. They desired to be back to their homeland. They were content in Babylon. They were content in the world. And it made them weep because they loved the homeland so much. And then when we showed up at home, it's like, wow, it's amazing. It's like them that it's like a, a fantasy. It's it's like them like them that dream. But I hope there's something inside of you that is discontent right. here in this world. Right. The reason for that is because there is something that is heavenly that's been imparted unto your soul. Right. And your, your soul is not made for earth anymore. Your soul is made for heaven, which is just amazing to think about as a side note. You know, there's going to come a time in the resurrection where our bodies are going to have to be glorified, and that's the only way that our bodies can be in the presence of Jesus. Something's going to have to happen to our bodies for them to be fit for the presence of God. But our soul, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Immediately, immediately, there is no additional process that has to happen. There is no additional cleaning up that has to happen. Our soul, as it resides inside of us, is fit for heaven right now. And that sure is hard to fathom. Because when we die immediately, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, and our soul, as it sits inside of us, is fit for the presence of God in heaven. And I'll tell you, that soul is not happy with the wickedness of this world around us. And if you don't feel that way, I pray the Holy Spirit will tender your heart. Not to be born again, but it's very possible 
that your conscience may have become seared with a hot iron. We get dull to the wickedness. And I, I do it too. I do it too. You know, I watch a movie I shouldn't watch that has profanity in it. And I'm like, oh, I can ignore it. It's okay. I can, I can ignore it. The overall movie's pretty good, but I can ignore the profanity. That is me becoming desensitized to sin. That's me. That is me justifying my conscience to a degree being seared with a hot iron. And that's a scary place to be. Because first of all, it may just be the, you know, what we would deem to be small things like that. But you better watch out. Because it may not be too much longer but before there's a whole lot bigger things that aren't convicting your conscience. Right. So pray for the Holy Spirit. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Amen. Oh God, Lord, search me. And Lord, make my heart as tender to sin as your heart is tender to sin. It's not okay. It's not okay for me to be complicit with sin. But there is something inside of us that is fit for heaven right now, and that soul yearns to be back home. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have this beautiful depiction of faith of, in this section focusing on Abraham and Sarah. And he looked, this is in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham, he looked for a city. Now, there was a period of time that he went into uh, the other city that depicts the world uh, in addition to uh, Babylon is Egypt. So there was a time where he went into Egypt and he made mistakes when he went down into Egypt. He, he lied when he went down into Egypt and he, and he almost got in a very bad spot because of his lies down in Egypt. But Abraham... In this world, he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Skip to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We're not happy in Babylon. Now, while you're in Babylon, live life. While you're here in this world, build houses. Go to your workplace. Show the love and the light of Christ in the situation that you are in. Have wives. Bear children. But understand, this is not your home. Babylon is not your home. You are a spiritual Jew because you have received the circumcision of the heart and your, uh, your proper homeland is heaven, but the best that you can do while you're still living in Babylon is to go into Mount Zion and the church here in time. Okay? But he says here, for they, they confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers. They weren't content with the environment that they were in. And aren't you just glad? I, it, 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 it's no surprise that atheists are just so miserable. I mean, if you feel like that this is all there is, and you see death, and you see sickness, and you see war, and you see all these things in the world, and you think this is as good as it's ever going to get, 
I can understand why you need some pills to sleep at night. I can understand why you take your life. But I hope that you know as a child of God, this is the worst it's ever going to be. <laughs> right? This is the worst it's ever going to be. Why? Because our desire is to be with God in heaven. Amen. Our desire is to be home back into the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Isn't that the same kind of purposeful language that he's been speaking to those Jews about? Look, yeah, you're in captivity right now, but I am going to bring you back. I have prepared the city of Jerusalem, and I am going to work everything. You know, it wasn't up to them. They had no ability. When they were in, in, uh, in Babylon, they had no ability to secure passage back to their homeland, did they? There wasn't an invitation. <laughs> there wasn't a boat that you're signing up to get passage on or a camel trip back in the day, right? There wasn't something that you signed up for. God said, I'm the one that's going to get you from point A to point B. I'm the one that's going to bring you back home. And that's the reason that we can have a hope of heaven is because he is going to bring us into that heavenly country. He's the one that's going to make sure that none of his children permanently stay in Babylon. Okay? Now while we're here, while we're here, let's pray for our leaders. If anybody needs to be praying for our leaders, it's us. Yeah. Right? We need to be setting, setting the tone in that. But live life. And also, don't forget, beware of false prophets. That's what he told the people there. Beware of false prophets that tell you that everything's okay. No. Listen to God's word. Be faithful in Babylon. And, and remember, I've not forgot about you. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. And they are always thoughts of peace. And I, my intention for my people is to bring them back home. Aren't you glad that one of these days, either through our death or through the Lord's second coming, one of these days, we're going home. Amen. We're going home to heaven. A heavenly country. And we can see it by faith. Just, a little, just like Abraham and Sarah did in the Old Testament. They saw a little bit of it by faith. And we can see a little bit of it by faith right now. And I hope that your vision of that lets you know, boy, that land is so much better than what we're living in right now, right? That, that heavenly Jerusalem is so much better than all of the wickedness and sin around us. I mean, it's, it, Paul said when he was in Athens, he just, it vexed his soul so much to see the city holy, holy given to idolatry right. that he just had to preach. I hope that this, this wickedness of Babylon around us, that it vexes your soul. If not, be careful, because you may be kind of like Lot, right. who got very comfortable in Sodom. There was a time where it vexed his soul. 
It uses that language in the New Testament. There was a time where it vexed his soul. But I think by the time that angel showed up, it wasn't vexing him near as much as it was years before. Why? Because he had allowed his conscience to be seared with a hot iron. Why? Because of the authority and the influence and the prosperity that Sodom afforded him. He, he was a ruler, he said, in the gate of the city. There came a time where he compromised. We talked about Babylon, we talked about Egypt. We can throw Sodom right in there too. There came a time where he chose to go over there, but he didn't, he didn't say, okay, I'm, I'm in Sodom, but I'm not of Sodom. No, he said, you know what? I think I can do pretty good here in Sodom. I, I think I can go along to get along. Next thing you know, he was a ruler and his conscience had become seared. And he was not being convicted in the manner that he ought to as a child of God. But I think there was also a part of Lot that knew that he was in the wrong. That soul and conscience of Lot said, you know what, I, should, I shouldn't be here. I should be fellowshipping with the friend of God in the promised land. I should be over here with Abraham. But sometimes this world can get enticing. It can. And there is pleasure in sin, but don't forget, it's only for a season. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but the joys of the kingdom are worth those parables there in Matthew 13 where it describes the treasure hidden in a field. They are worth selling all that you have to obtain that treasure. They're worth it. They're worth it. The kingdom of heaven, we can get a little bit of, the, of our eternal blessings in heaven that we will have for all of eternity. One of these days we're going to go home, but we can get a little bit of those blessings right here and right now in the kingdom of heaven. When we are obedient, when we serve God faithful, faithfully, even in the midst of a wicked culture around us. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.